Welcome back to Are You a Witch? Part 2. I really had no idea how deep the subject of witches goes, and even with America being the baby of the civilizations from a historical point of view, I didn't realize how much documented history there was. And once I was in it, I couldn't very well leave things out. How could I decide? So you get a double dose of Wicked Witches. Last week we focused on where our ideals and visuals of witches stemmed from and tapped into how the witch trials began in Europe. This week we come home to America. And you can't really talk witches in America without the Salem Witch Trials. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. From 91 to 87 BCE, there was a five-year-long witch hunt in China that reshuffled political power and led to Confucianism becoming the dominant way of life. According to GirlMuseum.com, they write, quote, In 91 BCE, Emperor Wu had been ill for a long time. Thinking it the work of witches, Zhang Chong convinced the emperor to excavate imperial parks and palaces searching for effigy dolls used to perform black magic and thus cause his disease. Anyone accused of using the dolls was arrested, and tens of thousands were put to death, including the crown prince and ultimately Chong himself. The hunt murdered entire ruling families, leaving a power vacuum later filled by Confucians. So, while the last week may have horrified us of the travesties happening in Europe, turns out even they were fairly new to the sport of witch hunts. That was just one example. When we think about witches and witchcraft in America, most go straight to the Salem witch trials. It was back when the colonies were so new that everything still felt European. Would you be surprised to learn that Salem was not the first witch hunt? It's not even the first trial or the accusation of witches. True, Salem takes the cake by pushing things over the top for here on American soil, but fear and superstition have taken its toll elsewhere, which is where we begin. Over here in the States, the witch hunts really hadn't penetrated the borders just yet. We already had enough on our plate, what with displacing the Native Americans, figuring out how to grow crops in brine, cholera, surviving long sea voyages, and carving out communities in untamed wilderness, all while still paying homage to the homeland. After 1622, some colonists began to accuse one another of practicing witchcraft. They believed the Native Americans they came in contact with were devil worshippers and were afraid of their influence to members of the community. But before even that, we have Catherine Grady. She was executed for being a witch on the way to the New World. The story goes, on the journey to Virginia from England, the ship got caught in a violent and fierce storm. 
In order to save the ship, they needed to find the witch that somehow got on board and caused said storm. They searched among the passengers and found Catherine. She was old, and I'm sorry to say, a homely woman, and seemed to be the witch they were looking for. They skipped the trial and the tests and hung this poor woman at sea. The incident report doesn't even say if it worked, if the storm was stopped. Well, I guess since the ship made it to Jamestown, they probably felt justified in their actions. So, Virginia gets the marks for first witch killed at sea. Puritans practiced the ritual of confession. It was an integral part of their religion. It was commonplace to confess your sins on a regular basis. The premise being, once the sin is brought to the light, then it can be rectified. Being possessed by the devil, or convinced to sign the devil's book with the promise to have more of what they lack, it was, quote-unquote, an absence of God. Because Puritans felt heavily the weight of their sin, and because confession was such an integral part of their lives, it's not that surprising that men and women confessed to having made a pact with the devil. They were led to believe that, as in the past, when they confessed, they would be forgiven. And, as we have seen, the use of deception was allowed so they could promise release, but that was never their intention. The torture they underwent was to overcome the hold Satan had over them. I am not condoning or making light of the misogynistic leaders that were spearheading the witch hunts, but perhaps they truly believed their town was under attack. I don't know. But if that was the case, They manipulated facts to amplify the fear, and perhaps they took a tiny bit of pleasure in all that power. As when looking deep into our history, it's easy to question, why would they confess to something they didn't do? Hopefully keeping that in mind will help as we continue, because it's going to get bumpy. Joan Wright was known in the town as a healer and a midwife, and a witch. She lived in Surrey County, Virginia. She was left-handed, obviously being a sign of a witch. She was older and lived alone. Her accusers blamed that she had accurately predicted the deaths of at least four of her neighbors, bewitched livestock and crops, and because she was not chosen to be the midwife, she cast a spell and killed a newborn baby. Although she was arraigned, she never faced trial. No one knows what, if any, punishment she faced, but records indicate that at some point she was fined 100 pounds of tobacco for an unspecified act. She goes on the record as being the first accused of witchcraft in the New World. Virginia courts were reluctant to hear accusations of witchcraft and were even more reluctant to convict. Unlike the Salem witch trial courts where the accused had to prove their innocence, which we'll get into, Virginia courts, the accuser had to carry the burden of proof. But even while they required proof, meaning not so much supernatural examples, they did rely heavily on searching for witch marks and the swim test. Francis Pollard of the Virginia Historical Society states in an article in USA Today in 2006, quote, It was pretty clear that Virginia early on tried to discourage these charges being brought of witchcraft because they were so troublesome, end quote. 
Although few Virginia records survive from that era, 19 known witchcraft cases were brought in the colony during that 17th century. All but one ended in acquittal. Meanwhile, in 1647, a 32-year-old resident of the Connecticut colony is not only accused, but hanged for witchcraft. The documentation is very limited when concerning the witch trials of the 13 colonies. But thanks to John Winthrop, the governor of Massachusetts Bay, and Matthew Grant, the town clerk of Winder, Alice Young's fate is forever recorded. At the time, there was a recorded influx of influenza cases and deaths in the area, and it is believed the fault for this was placed at Alice's feet. She fit the profile. She was single. Her husband had abandoned her. She stood to inherit the property, and she had a baby, also named Alice. The details are unknown, but on that fateful day, May 26th, she would hang until dead in the town square of Hartford. She is considered the first witch to hang in the colonies. Side note, in 30 years' time, her daughter Alice, the other Alice, will also be accused of witchcraft. Here's something interesting I found from the Egyptian Code of Hammurabi around 1750 BCE. It reads, quote, If a man has put a spell upon another man, and it is not justified, he upon whom the spell is laid shall go to the holy river. Into the river shall he plunge. If the holy river overcome him and he is drowned, the man who put the spell upon him shall take possession of his house. If the holy river declares him innocent and he remains unharmed, the man who laid the spell shall be put to death. He that plunges into the river shall take possession of the house of him who laid the spell upon him. End quote. First of all, I'd like to point out that it was a man casting the spell, and also notice the purifying judgment of the water. By that, it brings us to the story of Grace Sherwood. From what I could find, she is the first to have the swim test used in her trial, since she refused to confess. Grace was considered to be a local beauty in her township of Pungo. She was also known to be a healer and would be called to help women when it came time to give birth to their littles. She married James Sherwood in 1680. She was considered odd when she was seen wearing men's trousers to plant her crops. Maybe her dress was dirty, I don't know, but she got caught. In 1698, a local man, Richard Capps, began spreading rumors that Grace was a witch. He'd say she cast a spell on his bull, causing its death. Grace and her husband took Richard to court for slander, and apparently there was a settlement paid to the Sherwoods. The very next year, she was accused again by neighbors. This time, she bewitched hogs and destroyed their cotton crop. And then again, by Elizabeth Barnes, who would say that Grace's specter would come through the keyhole and sit on her chest attempting to suck the breath from her lungs and then escape by turning into a black cat. The courts are unclear of that outcome. The next time Grace appeared in court was due to an actual physical altercation with neighbor Elizabeth Hill. The Sherwoods sued again for assault and battery, and this they won. But by this time, the courts were getting a little tired of seeing Grace before them. So on January 2, 1706, when Grace was 46 years old, 
she was again accused of being a witch by Luke and Elizabeth Hill. The courts determined to get the bottom of it. This time her charges claimed she killed livestock, caused storms, and ruined crops, and caused Mrs. Hill to miscarry. She denied the charges and refused to show up for court. Of course, that showed signs of guilt, and witch proof was demanded. They searched her house for poppets, which are waxed or baked figurines, sometimes made of scraps of cloth, made to look as a tiny person that they were attacking. They found none. They went on to search for witch marks. She was stripped down and searched by a, quote, jury of ancient and knowing women, end quote. They discovered two marks, quote, not like theirs or like those of any other woman, end quote. Side note, the forewoman to this ancient and knowing crew happens to be Elizabeth Barnes, one of the Elizabeths who charged her before of witchcraft. Not in a big hurry to accuse her and get involved, the courts practically begged her to confess to being a witch and then ask for forgiveness so the whole thing could be over. She instead responded, quote, I be not a witch, I be a healer, end quote. Okay, one last test, and that's it. I mean it. Grace was taken to the Lynnhaven River. Crowds had gathered from all around to watch the procedure. They shouted from both shores, Duck the witch! If she was not a witch, she would sink to the bottom. If she was a witch, the purity of the water would not allow her presence, so it would force her back out, causing her to float to the top, proving she was a witch. I'm not sure if you're up to date on your science facts about the water, but I don't want to spoil it for you. Here she was stripped naked, her body searched again for any devices that might aid her, her hands were bound by ropes behind her back. Quote, her right thumb to her left big toe and her left thumb to her right big toe. A cloth sack was thrown over her head and she was tossed from the side of the boat. She popped back up to the surface almost immediately. I know, I'm as surprised as you. Giving her the benefit of the doubt and some extra weight, they tied a 13-pound Bible around her neck and tossed her in again. It did help to hold her head down, but she felt like she was drowning, so she broke free from the ropes and pushed up to the top. Undisputed proof, she's a witch. She was jailed immediately. It was said they were going to give her a new trial, but it seems like they almost forgot about her. It appears she stayed in jail for almost eight years before her name shows back up on tax records. She goes back to her land and lives a quiet life until her death in 1740. There were, actually, no executions for witchcraft in Virginia. 300 years after her conviction in 2006, the governor, Tim Kaine, restores her good name. On our timeline, while Grace was being hunted, the Salem witch trials would have already come to an end in Massachusetts. And by 1750, witchcraft was no longer on the books as a crime in Connecticut. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, 
they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Increase Mather, a devout minister and also president of Harvard during the late 1600s, would pass along a letter, practically a book, to his followers and fellow religious leaders, his son, Cotton Mather, being one. This letter was filled with fantastical stories that had come to Increase Mather's attention, from whom he says were reputable sources. One was about a man who was unsatisfied with his station in life, and was offered money from a stranger. He accepted the money and spent it quickly. The man returned to offer more money and status and property, and all it would require was a signature. (laughs) Sounds kind of like our credit card companies today. Fast forward to terrible things happening, and they realize that it is Satan that's behind everything. On a fateful day when Satan comes to claim the soul of the man, He is surrounded by ministers who pray unceasingly for days, and finally, the sky turns gray and a hole opens up and a parchment falls to the ground. It is the man's contract. It is torn up immediately, and they all live happily ever after. Another story tells about a man who grows a goat's horn from his mouth because of a curse and ends up perishing. I kind of skimmed over that one. The third story is about a fierce storm with thunder and lightning that strikes the home of someone who recently came into wealth, I think. On this very day, the 11th of September, 1653, being the Lord's Day, a Mr. Constant Southworth of Duxbury was returning home after an evening of exercise. Then, quote, there broke perpendicularly over the house and room a most awful and amazing clap of thunder attended with a most violent flash, or rather flame of lightning. It filled the room with smoke and flame, end quote. And then, as if directed by unseen hands, bolts of lightning melted some pewter, shot small holes the size of small goose shot through a fire shovel. It, quote, struck Mrs. Southworth's arm so that it was for a time benumbed, smote the child, Benjamin, in his mother's arms, deprived it of breath for a space, and to the mother's apprehension squeezed it as flat as a plank. It smote a dog, stone dead, which lay within two feet of Philip Delano. The dog never moved, giving a small yelp and quivering with its toes, lay still, blood issuing from its nose or mouth. It smote the said Philip, made his right arm senseless for a time. And although the said Delano felt a most violent heat upon his body, as if it had been scorched in the midst of a violent burning fire, yet his clothes were not singed, neither had the smell of fire passed thereon, He goes on to say that witnesses informed him that, quote, that the lightning in that house at Duxenborough did with the vehemency of its flame caused the bricks in the chimney to melt like molten lead. Which particular was as remarkable as any of the other mentioned in the narrative, 
and therefore I thought good here to add it. End quote. While being a great story, I add this important detail here because before he closes his letter, the ones who are probably reading these accounts with their jaws dropped, Mather requests of his people that they look for and record what he refers to as remarkable providences. His son Cotton, who was in charge of carrying out the Salem witch trials, had these remarkable stories to prove the devil is alive and well in New England, and then a calling, a request by his father, that he needs to discover more proof and keep it from spreading. I'll just leave that there. Samuel Paris comes to Massachusetts from London by way of Barbados, bringing two slaves he acquired there, Tichuba and her husband. While the majority of his living came from his merchant business, he decided to join the ministry in 1689 in Salem, Massachusetts. His community was hardly peaceful as the surrounding towns and villages seemed to constantly bicker and quarrel, bringing them for Paris to resolve, but no one was ever satisfied by his resolutions. Pressures continued to build and the towns began blaming their new minister for much of their trouble. And he didn't help matters. The people believed him to be untrustworthy and greedy. Many of his resolutions ended up being things that would personally benefit him. Late in 1691, when a group organized to refuse to pay him a significant part of his salary, he began to preach that Satan was conspiring in Salem to destroy the church. In 1692, there was a smallpox outbreak, and then, a little closer to home, Paris's own daughter Elizabeth, who was nine at the time, came down with an ailment none had ever seen before. She had been diagnosed with quote-unquote distempers. It was noted she displayed symptoms of disorderly speech, odd postures and gestures, visions of specters, and convulsions. The village doctor William Griggs and Reverend John Hale were called when it spread to Abigail Williams, Paris's niece who was living with them. Having no other leads as to the cause, the men diagnosed the children as having been bewitched. Paris, distraught, retreated to private fasting and prayer, refusing to believe the explanation. Ministers in the surrounding area cautioned him to take things slow and allow God to guide him further, and he might have, but once the story leaked of the girl's ailments and possession, the town was beside themselves with worry. Soon other girls became stricken with some of the same symptoms as Elizabeth and Abigail. A few adults, too. Panic began to spread. Rumors crept up that the girls had been led away by, quote, little sorceries and would be unaccounted for for short periods of time. A neighbor of the Parises, Mary Sibley, instructed the slave Tichuba to make a witch cake to help determine if witches were present and who they might be. A witch cake was made up of rye flour and the ailing person's urine. Then it was fed to a dog who is known to be sensitive to the occult. If the dog becomes ill with the same symptoms, a witch lives in the same home. If the dog survived because of the magic of the pea biscuit, the dog should have been able to point out who did the actual bewitching. On that note, there was also two incidences recorded where 
dogs were killed because they were accused of being witches. They had one chance to point out the person who afflicted them, and when they didn't, it was assumed that they were indeed the witch, so they were forced to die. I know most of you can handle some pretty hardcore information being fans of the Bag of Bones podcast. Sometimes the worse the better. But I also know that comes to a screeching halt when an animal gets involved. Please, do not send nasty emails. Do not kill the messenger. I didn't discover whose urine was used or whose dog had to eat the cake and to whom it pointed. But under duress, the girls placed guilt to Tichuba, the slave girl to the Paris's household on the 26th of February. She was taken into custody and questioned and tortured until she confessed to being a witch. The next day, two other girls who were sick, Anne Putnam Jr. and Elizabeth Hubbard, pointed the finger at two other women they believed to have been witches. Sarah Good, who was a local poor homeless mother and beggar, she would have likely been teased and accused of witchy behaviors even on the best of days. Sarah Osborne was next. She, too, was an outcast, the product of gossip. She was considered confrontational, and most scandalous of all, she fell in love and married an indentured servant. Must be a witch. The three women were taken into custody on February 29, 1692. Its documented magistrates John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin examined the women, searching for witch marks, and none were found. But Sarah Osborne's good-for-nothing indentured servant husband threw her under the bus by revealing a mole he knew to be on his wife's back. But <laughs> that's not all. After his wife was questioned and claimed her innocence, her husband was questioned. He told those in attendance that he was afraid that either she was a witch or would be one very quickly. He teared up and added, quote, She is an enemy to all that is good. End quote. <laughs> Whoa, that's serious. But then a neighbor was called in to testify. The word of he and his wife were equally damning. The story goes that the couple, Samuel Abbey and his wife, allowed the Osbournes to stay with them for a while since they were poor and had no place to live. They said, quote, Sarah was of so turbulent a spirit, spiteful and so maliciously bent, that we could not suffer her to live in our house any longer and was forced, for quiet's sake, to turn she, the said Sarah, with her husband out. End quote. There were several, several testimonies repeating that Sarah Osborne was not a nice person, and they also blamed that she somehow killed some of their cows. The story about the slave Tituba would be she could have her freedom if she would only confess, so she created wild and elaborate stories to convince them of her honesty. They asked her questions, and she answered them. It was like the answers a child would give if they believed you were searching for a specific reply so as not to get in trouble. She created the answers she thought they were looking for. I read her testimony, and it sounded very innocent and childlike. She admitted the other two were also witches. Her testimony added fuel to the fire, making the witch hunt spiral out of control. Now that Tichuba had confirmed that satanic work was afoot, and that there were other witches around, there was no stopping them until 
all were found. Side note, Tituba eventually recanted her confession, an act that enraged Reverend Paris. In retaliation, Paris refused to pay the jailer's fee to get his slave out of prison. Tituba spent some 13 months in jail until an unknown person paid seven pounds for her release. Sarah Osborne stood firmly on her innocence and probably cried, but she had not attended church in over a year. Obviously, a witch. Sarah Good said she was clean, but the other two, definitely witches. Dorcas Good, a four-year-old daughter of Sarah Good, became the first child to be accused of witchcraft when three of the girls complained that they were bitten by the specter of Dorcas. The four-year-old was arrested. When the authorities promised she could see her mother if she confessed, of course she did. She confessed that her mother was a witch, and she was one too. Dorcas Good was kept in jail for eight months and would watch her mother get carried off to the gallows. It was said she would, quote, cry her heart out and go insane, end quote. Since the girls' afflictions did not cease, the next month they were forced to charge someone else. Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse were both women in high standing and were well respected in the community. They were the next accused. Elizabeth Paris continued to get worse and told her father of being visited by the devil in a vision and said he wanted her to, quote, be ruled by him, end quote. Her father was so worried for their daughter they sent her away to live with the family of Stephen Seawall, who also happened to be a relative. After a few weeks there, the child's symptoms abated, and so did the visions of devils and the accusation of witches. At the time, there was no official court or government in place, and everyone had to stay jailed until the new governor, Sir William Phipps, arrived from England to sort things out. Since the courts were so backed up, Phipps appointed a special court of Oyer and Terminer. The first case was heard on June 2nd, 1692. Cotton Mather, and this is pivotal, urged the new Chief Judge William Staunton and other judges to allow confessions and admit spectral evidence. This is when the afflicted person claims that they have been visited by a ghost or the vision of the accused. Mather's advice was heeded. The judges also decided, under Mather's encouragement, to announce those who watched the proceedings to allow the so-called touching test. This was when the defendants were asked to touch afflicted persons to see if their touch could start or stop the contortions or other illnesses. And finally, another test, based on examinations of the body of the accused for evidence of which marks would be acceptable. These are considered any marks, freckles, moles, scars that may have been placed there by the devil. Some believed these marks, if raised, served almost like a nipple to feed witches' familiars, creatures that could be summoned to do her bidding. <laughs> I know, the imagination, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Kramer mentions all of these tests in his book, which all must have read, even though it's been several hundred years since it was originally published. It reads, quote, She must be walked in backwards, and the hair should be shaved from every part of her body. 
The reason for this is the same as that for stripping her of her clothes, for in order to preserve their power of silence, they are in the habit of hiding some superstitious object in their clothes or in their hair, or even in the most secret parts of their bodies, which must not be named. End quote. After hearing this, the whole Salem witch trial fiasco became its own version of Mean Girls. I'm not discounting the girl's original illness, which we'll tap into later, but I also believe there was teenager nastiness at play as well. Most of the accusers were teenagers, and they used everything. They claimed they were bit, pinched, and scratched. They saw visions of the accused in their rooms. They would say they were being forced to sign the book of the devil to give him control over them. And, worst of all, they performed on command in the courtroom. They would convulse and scream or go deaf and mute all on command. Didn't they start to suspect that it was always the same handful of teens that kept accusing people? The first documented accused witch to be brought to trial was Bridget Bishop. She was almost 60 years old, and some say she owned a tavern where she allowed patrons, men and women, to drink ale, even on the Sabbath. She was considered opinionated, used foul language, even on the Sabbath, and not a fan of taxes. And she had a turn or two inside the courts for other reasons. She and her second husband, Thomas Oliver, would come to blows as husband and wife and were fined by the courts on more than one occasion. In 1678, the courts got creative. Quote, Bridget, wife of Thomas Oliver, presented for calling her husband many opprobrious names as Old Rogue and Old Devil on the Lord's Day, was ordered to stand with her husband back to back on a lecture day in the public market, both gagged for about an hour, with a paper fastened to each other's foreheads upon which their offense should be fairly written. Quote. When her husband died in 1679, leaving the majority of his inheritance and property to her, his children accused her of bewitching him to death. There was a lack of evidence that kept the case from going to trial. She then married Edward Bishop, who was a woodcutter. At the time, she was fairly well off and had an apple orchard, pigs, and chickens. On April 18, 1692, she was arrested of charges of witchcraft, again. She was accused by four of the teenagers. She was examined and questioned. She was indicted on five separate charges of witchcraft. And over the next few months, Ten witnesses would claim everything from bewitching livestock to multiple specter visits to even sucking the breath from an infant so it would die within months. One of the girls would give testimony that two dead spirits of twin boys came to her to tell her that Bridget Bishop bewitched them to death. She was forced to undergo humiliating physical exams where they found flaps of skin in the most private of areas. They reported finding, quote, an excrescence of flesh, end quote. Sure that these were witch marks, she was forced to be examined again. The second searchers decided that they were not witch marks, but 
flaps of skin from a 60-something-year-old woman who's given birth to a child or children. And I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but all of these exams were done in front of a crowd of people, adding to the humiliation. According to the book Legal Executions in New England, quote, The trial of Bridget Bishop opened in Salem on June 2, 1692. It was a one-day affair. Seven judges headed by Deputy Governor William Stoughton comprised the court. Bridget was allowed no counsel. At least no one is known to have risked their skin to defend her. The evidence produced was but a rehash of the scurrilous stories that long circulated about her. The prevailing lunacy of the afflicted girls counted heavily against her as well. Cotton Mather, who later wrote of the trial, captured the quintessence of the proceedings when he remarked, There was little occasion to prove the witchcraft, it being evident and notorious to all beholders. Bridget Bishop was predoomed by popular opinion and prejudice. End quote. She was found guilty and sentenced to hang. Hans Siebold, author of Witch Children, would use the term collective reinforcement to describe the teen's courtroom behavior. Quote, the synchronization of their performances was seen as confirmation that the accusers were telling the truth about their spectral visions. End quote. Thomas Hutchinson, an 18th century historian, argued that basically the teens were giving the crowd what it wanted. They were, quote, caught up in the moment and the responses their actions were receiving, end quote. Siebold also offers, quote, It is also possible that once the first accusations had been made, the group realized that they could not repent on what they had said without being charged with perjury. Therefore, they may have continued to make accusations in order to make the supposed ordeal seem more legitimate and therefore to protect themselves. Had the girls been separated and examined individually, their evidence may not have been as convincing. It is likely there would have been inconsistencies, and some accusers would have been unlikely to provide such spectral accounts without the prompts and cues of their leaders. End quote. Siebold explains that during the 17th century, the idea that specters came causing harm to innocent people was entirely believable and prompted fear in the community. Quote, Thanks to the people's belief in this phenomenon, the girls' testimonies and accusations were taken at face value instead of hoaxes or hallucinations. End quote. Their names came up again and again in several of these trials. One of the judges, Nathaniel Saltonstall, was so repulsed at the conduct of the Bridget Bishop trial, he resigned from the court. Chief Justice Stoughton signed Bishop's death warrant, and on June 10, 1692, Bishop was carted to Gallows Hill and hanged, the first victim of the Salem trials. The fact that Thomas Newton, the special prosecutor, selected Bishop for his first prosecution suggests that he believed a stronger case would be made against her than any other suspected witches. And he was right. After this one-day court case, others went down easy. And if it didn't, well, that was remedied as well. In the case of Rebecca Nurse, a highly respected active member of the church, her trial's jury came back with the verdict of not guilty. 
Chief Justice Stoughton was not pleased and told the jury to go back and consider again a statement of nurses that might be considered an admission of guilt. The jury reconvened and, oddly enough, the second time returned with a verdict of guilty. On the 12th day of July, William Stoughton read the death warrant for Sarah Good, Rebecca Nurse, Susanna Martin, Elizabeth Howe, and Sarah Wilds. Their final document ends with Salem, July 19, 1692. I caused the within-mentioned persons to be executed according to the tenure of the within warrant, signed George Corwin, Sheriff. In the meantime, Cotton Mather was very pleased with the progress of the trial. He writes, quote, If in the midst of the many dissatisfaction among us, the publication of these trials may promote such a pious thankfulness unto God for justice being so far executed among us. End quote. Cotton Mather would also write a letter to the Chief of Justice congratulating him on, quote, the extinguishing of as wonderful a piece of devilism as has been seen in the world, end quote. Sanford J. Fox's book, Science and Justice, The Massachusetts Witchcraft Trials, would add that, quote, confession was the only form of evidence that was likely to lead to an acquittal. This is because the court aimed to rescue those with repentance from the devil and reintegrate them into society. Some of the accused realized that they would not be able to overcome the spectral accusations and therefore decided to confess to a crime that they did not commit. Abigail Hobbs was one such individual who, on April 19th, admitted to conversing with the devil and following his instructions to Pinch Ann Putnam and Mercy Lewis. This pattern of confessing witches became more pronounced as those accused realized that it was the easiest way to avoid being sentenced to death. End quote. The court also placed high credibility on the testimony of confessed witches who named other individuals involved in witchcraft. Those that dared to scoff at accusations or proceedings of the witchcraft trials risked becoming targets themselves. One such man was John Proctor. He was openly critical of the trials, and soon after, he was accused of witchcraft himself. He was the first of five men accused. Teenager Elizabeth Booth testified that ghosts had come unto her and accused Proctor of serial murder. He was tortured and questioned again. He fought back as best he could, and they ended up accusing his wife of witchcraft as well. She was spared the noose, however, because she was pregnant. Proctor was hanged. On April 18, 1692, Giles Corey, an 81-year-old man, was also accused of witchcraft, and rather than plead guilty or innocent to the charges as other members of his community had done, he chose to say nothing. At the time of all of this unique trial, all of the modern colony laws had been suspended, which meant they reverted back to English law. So, if Giles Corey confesses his guilt, his property would be seized by the state and it would leave his wife and children with nothing. He was pretty sure he was going to die anyway, but by not putting in a plea, the state couldn't take anything more than his life. 
he'd claim the court had already made up its mind about his guilt. The people, he claimed, who offered testimony against him were the same people upon whose testimony the court had relied for convictions in many previous trials. The trial was a farce. He was not hanged, and he did not stand trial for witchcraft. They gave him a chance to make a plea by pressing him in the very literal sense. On September 22, 1692, the court lay him on his back and placed flat boards on his naked body. They proceeded to lower a cart of boulders that would sit on his chest. They would continue to add rocks until his spine cracked, and he was dead. Eight more convicted witches, including Guile Corey's wife, Martha, were hanged. They were the last victims of the witch hunt. So the whole reason he chose not to speak didn't matter anyway. It was to save his wife from poverty, but she ended up being hanged and his property was seized. Mary Eastie, in her petition to Governor Phipps and the judges of the court, blamed her convictions on the, quote, wiles and subtleties of her accusers. Then she wrote, quote, I am now condemned to die. The Lord knows my innocence. I petition your honors, not for my own life, for I know I must die, my, and my appointed time is set, but that no more innocent blood be shed, which undoubtedly cannot be avoided in the way and course you go. End quote. Many scholars believe that property disputes and congregational feuds played a major role in determining who lived and who died and helped fuel the flames. More than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft, the devil's magic, and 20 were executed. Of the original three women that were first accused, Tituba was the only one who lived. I mentioned earlier that she was finally released from prison after 13 months, but Sarah Osborne died while in prison, and Sarah Good was hanged after giving birth in prison. Her baby, which she named Mercy, died before her death. By early autumn of 1692, the hysteria seemed to be fading and there was no more cases of distempers. More on that later. Doubts began to overshadow the choices made and the shocking number of graves being dug. Reverend John Hale said, quote, It cannot be imagined that in a place of so much knowledge, so many in so small compass of land should abominably leap into the devil's lap at once, end quote. Even Governor Phipps, his own wife, had now been brought up on charges of witchcraft. Further arrests had been halted. Things were getting too far out of hand. Increase Mather, the father of Cotton Mather, published what has been called America's First Track on Evidence, a work entitled Cases of Conscience. This he gave to Governor Phipps. He stated in the paper that if the evidence did not infallibly prove the crime against the person accused, the court ought not determine him guilty of it, end quote. Side note, this mere caution would grow to be the modern standard of proof doctrine of beyond reasonable doubt in modern courtrooms. Cases of conscience concluded that, quote, 
it were better that ten suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned. This gives the impression Increase Mather believed that innocent people had been convicted and executed. Also, Sam Willard, a minister from Boston, wrote a pamphlet called Some Miscellany Observations on Our Present Debates Respecting Witchcraft, in which he suggested that the devil might create the specter of an innocent person. It's believed after these writings, and the petition from Mary Eastie most likely prompted Phipps to make some serious changes. Soon after, he prohibited further arrests and dissolved the court of Oyer and Terminer on October 29th, replacing it with a superior court of judicature. The admission of spectral evidence and other tests was no longer an option. On the 3rd of January, 1693, Stoughton ordered the execution of all suspected witches who had been imprisoned. Phipps flatly declined enforcement of that order. He, in turn, released those who remained accused or convicted from prison. Oddly enough, without the admission of spectral evidence, all but three of the 31 who remained accused in January of 1693 ended up being acquitted. Quote, this further indicates the extreme weight that spectral evidence had held in prosecuting the earlier defendants. Without spectral evidence, no testimony or other forms of evidence was capable of establishing a covenant with the devil, resulting in such a high number of acquittals. Soon after, Samuel Sewell, one of the judges, issued a public confession of guilt and an apology. Several jurors came forward to say that they were, quote, sadly deluded and mistaken in their judgments. Reverend Samuel Parris, the father of Elizabeth, conceded errors of judgment but mostly shifted the blame to others and Satan. He would be asked to step down as the reverend for the town and tried apologizing again, but refused to give back the land that was seized during the trial. In September 1697, the Council of Ministers forced him not only to resign, but leave Salem. His replacement, Thomas Green, devoted his career to mending the congregation and the village. Governor Phipps blamed Chief Justice William Stoughton for everything. In 1693, Phipps wrote a letter to the British government claiming that Stoughton, quote, hath from the beginning hurried on these matters with great precipitancy and by his warrant hath caused the estates, goods, and chattels of the executed to be seized and disposed of without my knowledge or consent, end quote. Stoughton, of course, blamed Phipps for butting in when he was, quote, about to clear the land of witches, end quote. Stoughton refused to apologize or explain himself and would go on to become the next governor of Massachusetts. 19th century historian Charles Wentworth Upham would put the blame on both Cotton Mather and his father, Increase Mather. Quote, they are answerable, more than almost any other men have been, for the opinions of their time. It was indeed a superstitious age, but made much more so by their operations, influence, and writings, beginning with Increase Mather's movement at the Assembly of Ministers in 1681 and ending with Cotton Mather's dealings with the Goodwin children and 
the account thereof he printed and circulated far and wide. For this reason, then, in the first place, I hold these two men responsible for what is called Salem witchcraft. End quote. For several years after the trials, Cotton Mather continued to defend them and seemed to hold out hope for their return. Plagued by poor harvests and mild disasters, not to mention no one to work in the fields since the onset of the trials, Puritan leaders had begun to worry that God might be punishing them. On January 14, 1697, the general courts issued a document of apology and ordered a day of fasting and soul-searching to acknowledge the tragedy that occurred in Salem. The document reads in part, quote, We do therefore hereby signify to all in general, and to the surviving sufferers in especial, that we were sadly deluded and mistaken, for which we are much disquieted and distressed in our minds, and do therefore humbly beg for forgiveness. We do heartily ask forgiveness from you all, whom we have justly offended, and do declare to our present minds, we would none of us do such things again on such grounds for the whole world. For the most part, many of the accusers and judges showed little, if any, remorse for executing twenty people and imprisoning hundreds of others. Most placed the blame on the quote, trickery of Satan, thus freeing themselves from any responsibility. Because the victims confessed to their crimes and the hand of the devil was working over the community, many of the town felt no guilt or remorse for the series of trials and executions. Families who had lost loved ones and property during the trials would be a long time waiting to ever get it back and were expected to go on with their lives as if nothing happened. Quote, In 1702, the court declared the trials unlawful. The colony passed a bill in 1711 restoring the rights and good names of those accused and granted 600 pounds restitution to their heirs. William Good, who lost his wife and infant daughter Mercy, and whose daughter Dorcas was imprisoned, was one of the people who received the largest settlement. Massachusetts, as a state, formally apologized for the witch trials in 1957. It was in 1992 that the First Church of Salem voted to readmit Rebecca Nurse and Giles Corey, who had been excommunicated during the Salem episode. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you!
In looking back, many historians have debated if the whole Salem witch trials were a sham from the very beginning. Was Elizabeth Paris even ill? Could it have spread to others in the small village? Some contend the symptoms sounded similar to what medical doctors would find in asthma or epilepsy, but those don't take into account the others who were afflicted. Could they have all been faking? The accusers in the courtroom, yes. The accused, mm, not so much. I was surprised to find many historians dismiss the testimonies and symptoms of the girls as acts of supernatural or even dismiss them as imaginary. I found a study done by Dr. Linda Caporale in 1976 that might provide some evidence to something very real that could explain almost everything. What if it wasn't the devil? What if it wasn't fever? Perhaps it was something that could affect multiple members of the community and being without science or medicine, it would have gone completely unnoticed. Dr. Caporale suggests ergotism, a poisoning caused by a fungus that grows on rye. She says, quote, Suggestions of the physical origins of the afflicted girl's behavior have been dismissed without research into the matter. In looking back, the complexity of the physiological and social factors in the community obscured the potential existence of physical pathology suffered not only by the afflicted children, end quote. And if you think about it, rye is a crop that is used by an entire village to produce bread. Ergotism forms in rye after a severe winter and a damp spring, conditions that Dr. Caporale said her team researched and claimed were present in 1691, and therefore would have affected the rye harvested for consumption in 1692. She claims that they wouldn't have necessarily recognized a darker shoot on the rye as poisonous, so they used it. It's also been referred to as St. Anthony's fire. Some of the symptoms would include convulsions, muscle spasms, delusions, the sensation of crawling under the skin, and, in extreme cases, gangrene of the extremities. Not everyone would have responded to the ergo, but she did mention that children would be more susceptible because their immune systems were still maturing. And one other thing. This ergo creates a crystallized compound known as lysergic acid. This is what the hallucinogenic drug LSD is created from. That would explain the horrific and unexplainable visions the kids were having. All of those are good clues, but the one that made sense to me that no one really notices is just before everyone's conscience got a hold of them and the trials came to a screeching halt, there were no more cases of fits and distempers and hallucinations. So much so that when Elizabeth Paris was sent away from her home to visit relatives, she got better. She was no longer eating the same rye flour. And as with others, the poisoned rye flour ran its course. Something to think about. And one final thing. I know this episode has run a bit long, but I wanted to include Anne Putnam's final thoughts in wrapping up the topic. If you may recall, Anne Putnam was one of the girls that repeatedly accused others of visiting her in her room, pinching her, scratching her, and trying to get her to join the devil's book. 
62 times. 62 times. Her account was allowed 62 times to accuse 62 people that would account for 20 who were put to death. Anne was chronically ill in the years after the trials, and then both of her parents died in 1699. Being the oldest of 12, Putnam was left to raise her nine surviving siblings. In 1706, maybe feeling the weight of her sins, or maybe because of everything happening in her life, she felt she was being punished, but whatever the reason, she would be the only one of the six mean girls to apologize for her part in the trials. She'd say in part, quote, I desire to be humbled before God for that sad and humbling providence that befell my father's family in the year about 92, that I, then being in my childhood, should have made an instrument for the accusing of several people for grievous crimes, whereby their lives was taken away from them, whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons." and that it was a great delusion of Satan that deceived me in that sad time, whereby I justly fear I have been instrumental with others, though ignorantly and unwittingly, to bring upon myself this land of guilt of innocent blood. I can truly and uprightly say, I did it not out of any anger, malice, or ill will to any person, for I had no such thing against one of them, but what I did was ignorantly being deluded by Satan." and particularly as I was a chief instrument of accusing goodwife nurse and her two sisters, I desire to lie in the dust and to be humble for it, and earnestly beg forgiveness of God and from all those unto whom I have given just cause sorrow and offense, whose relations were taken away or accused." Anne Putnam would never marry, and died at the young age in 1716. This brings us to the end of our requested two-parter. Thanks again for Joanne Bergman for such a great topic. I hope everyone had a pleasant All Hallows' Eve and have scavenged the stores for all the half-price decorations for next year. Next week is our last request for this new season, but don't hesitate to keep them coming. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.